welcome back to You Ask For It. It's a podcast in which Pastor Steve and myself work through topics of doctrine. We work through practical parts of our faith. But when we originally started this podcast, we were mainly answering questions that people have had or that they've sent into us. Well, tonight, we've got a couple of nights in between, a couple of Wednesdays in between us starting a new series. So we thought we'd go back and revisit some questions. We had a member of our church turn in four questions. And the first two of those questions are centered around the Lord's Prayer, which at First Baptist Hendersonville, we say every, every Sunday. single Sunday. Yes. We say we join with Christians all around the world as we say the Lord's Prayer. So what we're going to do tonight is just walk through these four questions and to give you some, hopefully, some simple answers for our people, but then also for you listeners. The first question, it says, we know in Matthew that the word debts and debtors are used in place of trespass. What is the historical significance of these terms, and why were the latter terms used in some denominations rather than what Matthew wrote in his book? There's actually three words when we look at the Bible, specifically the teachings of Jesus, that speak about this, our sinfulness that are connected with the Lord's Prayer. Since we use the King James Version when we say the Lord's Prayer, I'm going to use the King James Version to talk about these three different words. Um, first, let me, let me show you these three words inside of their setting of the King James. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. It says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now this word debt that is used, it's only used twice in the entire Greek New Testament. Once it's referring to money in the money sense of the word debt, and the other sense is used right here, and it refers to our debts toward God. So that could be, that is our sins um, that we have committed, or even the sins of omission that, you know, Lord, forgive me for even the things that, I, that I've done that I don't even realize that I have done. That, that's what we see right here in this word debt. Now we move into a second word um, that he gives us that when Jesus is walking through the Lord's Prayer afterwards, he explains what he was saying in the Lord's Prayer and he adds the word trespass. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we had the word debt in verse 12, and now we have the word trespass in verse 14. And this is used only in the context of someone sinning against God or against another person. It's a deliberate breaking of God's law. Yes, yes. So by giving this commentary that Jesus gives us, he's letting us know that when he refers to tres- he's referring to trespasses when he uses, when he says, forgive us our debts in the prayer. Now, finally, let's go to Luke chapter 11, verse 4. In the prayer, it says, and forgive us our sins. Now, for most of us, we know the word sin. This is the most common word that we use when we talk about sin in our life. It means, the literal meaning of this means to miss the mark. And what do we know about every single human in this earth? We've all missed the mark. We've almost, that we have, none of us have been what it is that God intended for us to be. And on top of that, we know that every one of us have been hurt by somebody because they've missed the mark. They haven't been who God intended us to be. And so if you think about that, those are three times when scriptures are connected with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and the Luke 11 version doesn't say, give us our debts, forgive us our debts. It doesn't say, forgive us our trespasses. It says, forgive us our sins. So there's two times you find the Lord's Prayer and two different words are used. So that tells us there's not an absolute standard one way that you pray the Lord's Prayer. But the question he asked was, why 
do we use trespasses now? Why has that become the standard way that Christians in the English language, when they pray the Lord's Prayer, use that? Well, that goes back to something called the Book of Common Prayer. When the church of, in, in England decided to become a Protestant church, they decided that they would write um, a book of prayer that would order their services. It was called the Book of Common Prayer. And when they wrote the Book of Common Prayer and included the Lord's Prayer to be used on Sunday morning, they're the ones that said, "Give us this day, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So the Protestant churches in England when they left the Catholic Church, began to pray, forgive us our trespasses. And because that has had almost been the shadow that's hung over all of English-speaking Christianity, we followed that tradition. That, that book of common prayers had a big influence. For instance, the standard wedding vows. Have you used the traditional, what, what, to have and to hold from this day forward, or for, you know, rich or poor, all that kind of That comes from the book of common prayer. And so the Book of Common Prayer held a, a great bit of emphasis that goes there even to this day. Um, now, the word debts was probably replaced by transgressions because they felt it was a more clear picture of Jesus giving us the, the privilege of praying for forgiveness of sins. When you say, forgive us our debts, that could be Ooh, good news. Tell the IRS that one. <laughs> I'm praying that over my house right now. So, no, yeah. But, uh, but so they, they felt like we need to be more clear that this is talking about spiritual debt or sin. So what I'm going to do here, uh, we're going to go to the second question, and, and it's connected. The second question turned in was, in the final stanza of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom, uh, the, the person that sent the question says, I believe this was added in the reign of King Henry VIII. That's not true. It's much earlier than that. I would be interested in learning more of the historical significance because if you go to new translations, you will find that in Matthew 6, it ends with deliver us from evil. Then the words for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory are in the footnotes, but they're not found in the new translations. So... I've got to chase a rabbit about the King James Version and the new translations and why that particular phrase was left out or why later on it was included. Uh, now, you need to understand this. The King James is a wonderful translation translated in 1611. Can you imagine the world of 1611? And so here they were in England, and they were trying to find Greek manuscripts to combine to be the basis for the New Testament and the, actual, the, the King James New Testament is actually based on only eight Greek manuscripts, and none of them were more than 300 years old. So they weren't the most ancient. Later on, uh, the newer translations are based on Greek manuscripts that are a thousand years earlier than those. So tell us yeah. a little bit so more. So for about instance, we use this, the CSB, which mm -hmm. is one of those newer translations. And obviously since 1611, just with technology, and then what we found is archaeology. Many, archaeology, many more manuscripts. Now, sometimes the argument is that sometimes those manuscripts can differ a little bit. Well, think about this, though. Up yeah. until 1450, before the printing press was invented, what you had was monks in monasteries who were by hand translating every no, single one of copying. Them. Copying, I'm sorry, yeah, by hand copying a manuscript so that we would have extra copies of these manuscripts. So, Every single Greek manuscript was done by hand. Yes. 
And then they're hundreds of miles apart. Well, mm. if you've ever even copied something by hand, you know there's been times where you've left out, you know, you've missed a word or something here or there. Well, we have now thousands of these copies of manuscripts together. And what we found is that there, there was only a small difference of those manuscripts. So what you'll find is that those manuscripts we have today are about 98% the same. And the only difference is they're very, they're very easily explainable and they never affect any major doctrine. It's not major things that they've, they've mixed up a little if bit. If you take those eight ancient Greek uh, text, uh, to t- to take the eight copy, hand copy Greek texts that were used for the King James. It's not like they were magical. These are the holy ones because they didn't agree with each other. So they were looking at eight and there were different, small differences in each one. And they had to figure out now, which one should we go by? Because you're talking about monks all over doing by hand and there's going to be small differences. Now, the reason I say that is because I, my wife recently uh, got a letter from somebody in another church uh, talking about how the new translations intentionally left verses out. Well, that's not true. Uh, what, what, what the new translations have done out of reverence for the fact that the Bible is inspired and, and inerrant, they've said, let's get the copies that are closest to when the original author put his pen down. And that will be more reliable rather than some that have been gone, gone years and years on. So let me tell you what I believe happened here and why there's a few, and by the way, of the few differences we have, none are doctrinally significant, and most of them have an easy explanation. And I'll give you an example here. In Mark two seventeen in our CSB, it says this, When Jesus heard this, he told them, It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It ends right there. That's the CSB. But the King James Version at the end of that says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So you can hear somebody say, see, the CSB is trying to take repentance out of the Bible. But what you will find in every Greek manuscript is that the parallel story of this in Luke 5, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So there's no doubt that Jesus did say, I've come to call the right, not call the righteous, but call sinners to repentance. But in Mark, with the oldest manuscripts, he didn't have the word repentance. In Luke, they do. So I think what happened was this. In fact, I'll give you an example of it. In A.D. 160, a man named Tatian put together something that became very popular among the first Christians. He took the four Gospels and came up with what we would call today a harmony of the Gospels. You've got to remember, once again, there's no book binding, no book presses. I mean, you got this gospel here, this gospel there. You may not have all four gospels. He said, wouldn't it be valuable if I take them all and I put them and I, and I make them be the same? So what he, would, what he did in something called the Diatessaron is he would take the story that we found in Luke 5 and Mark 2 and make it and repeat it once. And then make sure that all the details match up. So, so it could be that some, some of what happened was the influence of that desire to make sure that each gospel said the same thing. Because undoubtedly, because we believe the, the scriptures are inspired and Luke wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit, no doubt Jesus did say, I've come to call sinners to repentance. But Mark didn't put those words there. And Luke did. Don't know why. But what happened is there was the desire to make them all be the same to, to look there. Now, let's talk about the phrase, for thine is the kingdom. Well, as the church went through the Middle Ages, and, and, and as it pressed on, there was a desire 
to have things sound, what we, we would call it formal, but the technical word is liturgical. Have you ever heard the word liturgical? That's where you have things that, that sound better in worship. Well, if you've got the Lord's Prayer and it abruptly ends in Luke and in, in Matthew in the oldest manuscripts, deliver us from evil. Amen. Is that, is, doesn't your soul say, well, we started with praise. Can we end in praise? So what happened was the, those monks began to say, we need to give it a better ending. And so they went back to the Old Testament. All the words of that phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, can be found in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. And this is a genuine Holy Spirit-inspired prayer in the Old Testament. But they said this would be the proper way to end it. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. You can see how every word of that last phrase is found in this lengthier prayer of praise. Once again, this is not adding to the Bible or taking away from the Bible. This is simply saying we're going to move some scripture over here to help us when we do our prayer in church. And so that's how that, that phrase was added. Now, Fortunately, we're going to go to another question. We've got question number. We've got two more questions, and I will say these two are definitely more probably questions that you've asked yourself um, dealing with people and how God interacts with people. Um, let me read this one. It says, "We are all familiar with the despots of history, including Mao Zedong, Stalin, Hitler, etc. Because their sins are too terrible to comprehend." If they would have repented and asked for mercy and forgiveness on their deathbed, would their sins have been forgiven and they be allowed to enter into heaven? Yes. Here's the answer. If Mao Zedong, just before he died, called out to Jesus to save him, he'd be in heaven. If Hitler called out to Jesus just before he died, he'd be in heaven. We've got proof for that in the scriptures. Thief on the cross. Yes. So, so the, the Bible is that scandalous in grace. And we've got to understand that. Now, there's no evidence that any of those did. They seem to have died in great rebellion against God. But we're going to give you, I'm going to give you a story. He's going to give you a story. Some of you may remember, the, well, he's the big baseball fan. Uh, but y'all may have heard the name Ty Cobb. He was, Nick, he was from Georgia, so he's called the Georgia Peach. One of the great baseball players, but one of the worst people that lived in the 1900s. I mean, he was horribly prejudiced. Uh, you know, he, if, if he saw a black in the stands, he would run the stands and start beating them. Uh, he he was he he harmed other players intentionally. They had, he had long metal spikes, and he would slide into a base with those spikes up so he could spike the person and cripple them in the knee. So this this is the kind of person he was, and so the players despised him. Uh, he was good. He held the records, but he was an evil man. Moved back to Georgia, lived in North Georgia. But somehow, just before he died, he became a Christian, and he sent this word out. He says, I want to let my fellow teammates know that I got saved in the bottom of the ninth. If you don't know what baseball is, that makes zero sense. But <laughs> as a baseball fan, I think that's great. Yes. <laughs> so, in other words, you can be saved just before you die. Now, it's a tragedy because it's a wasted life. Hmm. And all of that, but it, but it, that's true. Now, give us the other story. There's a recent story. Um, there's a biography that just recently came out about Tim Keller. If you don't know, Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City for 30 years. And in this biography, it told the story of Tim Keller and his brother. Tim Keller called into ministry when he was in college and, and does great ministry. Well, his, young, his brother 
ran far from the Lord, um, rejected the faith, entered into a life of homosexuality, and really stayed far from the Lord his entire life. Well, he ended up, he ended up getting AIDS. And um, one day when he was near the end of his life, Tim Keller and his wife, they went, Kathy, they went to back to his house to spend time with him. And there they had the opportunity to share the gospel with his, Tim had the opportunity to share the gospel with his brother. And he saw his brother, his brother repent and believe in Jesus. And Tim even has the words of saying, I believe without a shadow of a doubt, I'm going to see my brother again in eternity. Why? Because we know this, the great truth of the scriptures Whoever repents and believes, right? You know, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we have that great promise. One day, Pastor Steve and I were sitting in the office talking about this as we were looking at just things happening in the world. And and as you know, you've probably asked the question before of that person when they were six, you know, they prayed the Lord's Prayer, but then they never, you never saw anything from it. And we're having this conversation and I just told Pastor Steve, I'm having a hard time. Like, it's just, how do you, how do you rep, you know, just bring all this together. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Justin, one day when you get to eternity, what would you rather be true? That you get there and you walk in, you're like, I knew it. (laughs) I knew that person wasn't going to be there. Would you rather that be true? Or would you rather walk in and see that God is far more merciful than you could ever imagine? I choose number two. (laughs) I choose number two about that. All right. Last question for us tonight. Says during my working career, I had many customers who were Jewish. Many became close, lifelong friends. We seldom discussed our religious beliefs, but I have always believed in the Judeo-Christian heritage. Because they came, became my close friends, one area that they wanted to talk about was the Holocaust. Mm. Several of these folks had firsthand experience enduring the horrors of Auschwitz and many other of the concentration camps. I couldn't imagine. I have several stories of the trials and tribulations they endured to survive and how they were able to eventually immigrate to the United States. My question is, I know in Scripture our Lord Jesus says that the only way to my Father is through me, John 14, 16. 14, 6, I'm sorry. Because most followers of Judaism do not recognize Christ as the Messiah, are they condemned to hell? I think I know the answer to that question, but I think it would be worth us having a discussion about it. Let me just first say, Emotionally, this is a very difficult discussion. This is a discussion that no one wants to be able to have, especially when you understand what it is that they've been through. And let me also say this. We know that God is good and has a record of all the injustices that they, that they went through, that they endured. However, we can't ignore John 14, 6. We can't. Or we can't, also can't ignore 1 John 2, verse 23, where it says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. You know, I believe that the Bible is clear that you cannot reject Jesus and go to heaven. And most of those who are our Jewish friends have conscientiously conscientiously said, I will not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And so that 1 John 2 says you can't. If you reject the Son, you've rejected the Father. But here's something I want you to hold on to because we can't know everything. We've got to recognize that God is so much greater and bigger and true than I can imagine. So I would say this. We've got to trust that God is both fair and merciful. That just as God rewards some saved people more in heaven because of their faithfulness. They're saved by grace, but their faithfulness earns them crowns, rewards, etc. 
We also know that God's punishment is less severe for some, and it's based upon what Jesus said in Matthew 11. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to hell. But if the miracles were done you that had been done in Sodom, it would have repented. It would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment. I believe that the line is drawn. You cannot reject Jesus and go to heaven. But I believe that God somehow will have different levels of punishment based upon the person, the life of the person. That's probably why it says the books were open when the judgment happens in Revelation. They go through and look at their works, and that will determine the severity of the punishment. However that happens, I'll just tell you this. I'm glad God's the judge and not me. Uh, He didn't elect me judge, and I'm not planning to run for that office. He alone has the right to be the judge. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of You Asked For It. I hope it's been helpful for you. Um, Stick with us. We're going to have another special episode next week, and then we will walk into a new series that I think will be beneficial for all of us. Talk to you later on.